What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Many of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, which is my effort to find the most interesting people in the world and sit with them for hours while I ask questions in an effort to learn. We have no advertisers on this podcast, so it would mean the world to me if you would subscribe to the show on your favorite audio platform, watch episodes on YouTube, and tell your friends and family about the podcast. My goal is to help millions learn from the world's most interesting people. So let's get into today's episode. Ashley Vance is the author of a brand new book, When the Heavens Went on Sale, The Misfits and Geniuses Racing to Put Space Within Reach. Ashley also is the New York Times bestselling author of the book, Elon Musk. I really enjoyed this conversation with Ashley. We talk about space, SpaceX, Elon, and a bunch of space startups that are all racing to build rockets, get into space, and be on the frontier of what appears to be one of the big industries that's coming down the pipe, both here in the United States and internationally. This book by Ashley Vance is absolutely fantastic. I read the entire thing from cover to cover, and I highly suggest that you go pick it up yourself. It'll give you a great sense of what's going on in the space industry, who the players are, and why so much money, time, and energy is being spent in what appears to be just a pipe dream a few years ago go again here is my conversation with ashley vance anthony pompliano runs pomp investments all views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of pomp investments you should not treat any opinion expressed by pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy but only as an expression of his personal opinion this podcast is for informational purposes only all right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Ashley here with me. Uh, Ashley's got a brand new book out, When the Heavens Went on Sale, The Misfits and Geniuses Racing to Put Space Within Reach. I've read the entire thing. It's absolutely fantastic. It is a great space book follow-up to his book on Elon Musk. And I thought that'd be a great place for us to start this conversation is on Elon himself. Obviously, Elon is incredibly obsessed with getting to Mars. Uh, as you followed him to write the original book, and now you've continued to kind of pay attention to what SpaceX and Elon has done, what's changed? Is there changes to the mission? Is there changes to Elon personally? What are you seeing as the years go on? Yeah, the big mission is still there. I, I, he is obsessed with setting up this human colony on Mars. Um, he's always thought humans need a backup plan. Uh, you know, SpaceX's business itself has kind of changed in some ways. He always said, you know, it was meant to be sort of build a business to get to Mars. And I guess that holds true still. But, you know, he used to say he's not a moon person. Now SpaceX is doing missions to the moon. Um, Starlink, the space internet system, is like this massive part of the, the business that kind of just arrived in the last few years. And that's really, if you look at SpaceX's valuation, you know, there's there's almost like no money in actually launching rockets, even when you do it SpaceX style, which is pretty cheap and fast. Uh, all the money's in satellites, data, communication. So SpaceX's value is like totally tied up in, in Starlink. Um, so, you know, I think there's there's like all this added complexity to in business to the mission. Um, but at the same time, it's hard. It's hard to like if you if you don't follow space super close. It is like hard to convey how far ahead this is. Like not space boy, SpaceX fanboy talk. You know, this is just legit. I mean, they're so far ahead of the commercial space players, but then all the nations that have been doing this for decades. There, it, 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 it's like it's kind of the craziest 
business and tech story I, I can fathom. Um, then, you know, beyond SpaceX, yes, Elon has changed and gotten more complicated and, and sort of let himself lose. I, I get a little sad. I To me, um, you know, Twitter seems like a big distraction. He seems super worried about AI. I always kind of thought he would slowly wind things down and just be doing SpaceX all the time. When you look at um, SpaceX itself, you mentioned just how far ahead they are. To me, it's almost like the operating system of space now, right? Is everyone's got to go through SpaceX for the most part. Now, in this book, you cover a bunch of startups that want to change that. They want to have smaller rockets or more, you know, kind of uh, takeoffs and kind of all these different strategies. But is it still true that SpaceX really is, you know, the big boy in the room? And if you want to go to space with a satellite or some sort of cargo, you're going on a SpaceX rocket? Yeah, I mean, to a large degree, you know, like, look, Europe has rockets. Russia has rockets, although, you, you know, not many people can use them now. China, India, they can all get you to space, just not nearly as frequently as SpaceX can and, and usually not as cheaply. Uh, you're point is right. I mean, there's dozens of rocket companies. So people would kind of be like, why? I mean, SpaceX flies, you know, there's, there's different classes, right? There's kind of large, medium and small rockets and SpaceX is pretty dominant in the large part. Um, there's a huge thesis, which I get into in gory detail in the book that, look, we're going to put up, we have about like 9,000 satellites orbiting the earth now that's been on an exponential increase the last three years. People think we're going to put up 100,000, 200,000 pretty quick. Um, you know, not like nobody now produces enough rockets to make that happen. So if, if that becomes a reality and it looks quite like it is going to, then we need a lot of rocket players, probably not not dozens, but but more. And, but SpaceX would still be the dominant player in that in in that scenario. Um, it's just that I think there's probably more business to go around. The other thing is just like if Starship works, it's such a <laughs> the rocket is so massive that um, you know SpaceX would be taking like what we used to do for an entire year on one launch into orbit at a lower cost. Um, there's a lot between here and making that happen, but that's, you know, anyway, things could get quite dramatic. It'll be interesting to see exactly how this all plays out. So I want to talk about uh, the companies that you cover in this book. And there were two things that I think kind of came together that seemed to be the drivers of this explosion of uh, space startups. Now, SpaceX obviously started, you know, more than 20 years ago at this point, and they've been at this a long time. But one of the things was this guy, Pete Warden, who you cover, you know, almost all throughout the entire book. Uh, talk a little bit about Pete, his role at NASA, this idea that like he kind of was the misfit of NASA. But he even has this quote in the book where he's like, you know, in times of war, uh, you need different people who kind of think outside the box than during times of peace. And and he was that guy. Uh, so kind of talk, uh, talk about this guy, maybe his importance to this explosion of startups going to space. Yeah, I think he he gives some of the best quotes. I think he says something like, "In times of war, sometimes you need you know break break glass for crazy." And, and he was kind of the great crazy general. I mean, before Elon, you know, so Pete's Pete Warden's a bit older. He's probably close to his seventies now. Um, he was he was like an astrophysicist by training. He had a PhD. He ended up in the Air Force. Became a general, you know, hardly anybody knows about him, but he's like this figure that's been lurking back as like kind of a, a puppet master all this time. Um, 
he worked on the Star Wars missile defense shield during the Reagan era. He did a bunch of black ops stuff that he can't talk about. Um, but yeah, you know, he ends up he ends up at NASA Ames, which is like the Silicon Valley NASA Center. Uh, he's the director there in kind of like the early 2000s. And, you know, Pete, for decades, have been writing papers like, God, the government needs to get out of its own way. We need to make cheap rockets. We need to send them up all the time. We need to make cheap satellites. We have to piggyback on Moore's Law and what's been happening in consumer electronics. But but NASA and the military contractors were just sort of, you know, allergic to any of these new ideas. But Pete assembles like this team of 20-somethings at NASA Ames, like his little dream team of uh, space weirdos to, to go make some of these ideas happen. He had to like literally kind of... Uh, hide them in closets to keep them away from senators and, and NASA headquarters officials who were going to shut down what they were doing. But he he kind of makes this um, new era of commercial space happen. A lot of the startups in the book come right out at NASA Ames. And then Pete was the one who gave SpaceX, you know, Elon was funding SpaceX, but when they, they wanted to fund their first mission uh, through the Defense Department, Pete was the one who really kind of made that happen. And so, um, you know, I see him and Elon as these these two figures that that have propelled all this forward. So Pete obviously was this huge driving uh, factor. You mentioned that he went and found all like the space weirdos and brought them together. And what I took away from the book is like, when we talk about weirdos, we're not just talking about like, oh, this person's not in NASA. We're talking about literally going and finding like the 20 year old kid who uh, wants to blow shit up, right? Or like get to space in, in some weird way. Um, it, it really was this like weird uh, collection of people. Is that what it takes to kind of create something brand new that's so disruptive is like you have to go so much to the fringe of society and find these people with these wild ideas and and maybe the naivety or the stupidity to like actually go after them. Like talk a little bit about that group that he had put together there uh, at that uh, uh, facility. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question that, you know. The, there were a lot of people that he brought in. I call them Pete's kids, but there was there was kind of like this special group that were particularly close, probably about a dozen people. A ton of them lived in a commune called the Rainbow Mansion that I write about in the book. Um, and, yeah, I think it's this combination of um, you've got these young kids with all these ideas and they're capable, but they've never manage some huge budget or had to put like structure around a project. And then Pete was the, he was like the wizened old veteran in the room who could kind of set that stuff up. And then he could also, it was really like the protection that he gave them, you know, so he hands them the resources and usually this bureaucracy would come and just find its way to, to grind everything to a halt. But, but Pete was that unique person who, who was, you know, he almost got fired like 18 times. I mean, he was willing to like sort of deal with a lot of crap um, and, and protect these people. So I think it's kind of this mix. I think in space, um, I don't know if, if the average person really realizes like how stuck in the mud space had become and had just not changed for like 30, 40 years. So yeah, I think you needed like all these clean slates, these these people that had out there ideas it's sort of like the kind of person that um you know they're going to be told that this is dumb like a thousand times and they're still going to do it 
So the other kind of uh, big trend, if you will, was this idea of taking consumer electronics and being able to shoot them into space. And I didn't understand, I think, that component of uh, this explosion of space startups, uh, where my understanding after reading the book is uh, basically there was like space grade materials. And there were, you know, you'd spend $10 million on something that now is available to consumers literally for a couple hundred bucks. And there was a period where people had the idea, could we take the consumer electronics and would it survive going to space? Could it be on a rocket, et cetera? And so there's the phone sat program and a bunch of this stuff. But talk maybe about that period of time of like, that kind of seems like a stupid idea, you know, in hindsight of like how yeah. simple it is. But it does feel like maybe that was a really, really pivotal moment for space uh, kind of exploration in general that now consumer electronics and the lower price points could actually be used for this stuff. It really was. Planet Labs, you, you mentioned this phone sat program. They literally sent, they like bought a Google Nexus phone or a few of them and put them on a rocket and launched them into space to see if they would work. And and they did. And that ended up being the basis of Planet Labs, this company that has all these imaging satellites. And and I would argue SpaceX had this huge effect on the the cost of rockets and access to space. But it was like that moment where people finally got Moore's law and modern technology to space and had this this awakening. Um, it's like this weird historical baggage where, yeah, space used to be really hard. So you wanted to make a super fancy radio that you knew could survive the launch and 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 all the harsh conditions of space. And then time passed, you know, and you probably didn't need that anymore. But there was some contractor in in like Alabama that made the space grade radios and everyone just bought them from them because they always worked. And so these were the first people who were like, I think I think a cell phone might work up there. You know, like space is really freaking cold. <laughs> the temperatures like swing a lot. The rocket launch itself is really violent, but it turned out these phones work fine. And so then um, everybody's minds expanded at that point and they're like oh you know there's this there's been 40 years of turns of moore's law and all this innovation and now we can not only have cheaper stuff in space but obviously it's going to be more modern technology and and you know just the last part of that is that the thinking around satellites used to be that you you spend a billion dollars and you send this huge thing up and it lasts for 20 years like you know after 20 years pass it's it's not it's not a super modern bit of a, a equipment and so like this was like a whole rethinking of oh we should just make these satellites last for like 3 or 5 years and just swap them out all the time so this brings me to uh peter beck and uh you talk about like this rocket bike which i think gets back to this idea of kind of the space weirdos right is the same person who would put like a jet engine on a bicycle and see how fast it could go same person who thinks that they can launch rockets into space um but there's uh, also a focus on like doing it in New Zealand and not necessarily doing it in the United States. Uh, you mentioned in the book there was no infrastructure. Uh, there was no aerospace industry. There was no anything in New Zealand. And yet this guy who literally was spending his time putting, you know, rocket engines on bicycles in his spare time decides he's going to go instead of horizontal, he's going to go vertical. Uh, it, it, like how insane, is there a way to describe like how crazy of an idea that was before it actually came to fruition? You know, I think it's like a one in 7 billion sort of situation. Um, <laughs> I went to New Zealand a bunch of times for this book. I mean, it's like, it's, it's like as unique as SpaceX. It's just this weirder personal story in a lot of ways. Um, 
Peter grew up in Invercargill, which I don't know if anyone's ever had the pleasure. It's a very nice city, but it's like at the bottom of the South Island of New Zealand. The next stop is Antarctica. It's like very rural. There's there's not much going on there. And and this is like not a kid who was, you know, um, on his way to like a scholarship at MIT or anything. I mean, he he was very good with his hands, but he he didn't even go to college. He he was working at a dishwasher maker, an appliance maker, um, as like a apprentice. And and like you said, so he used to, he was just obsessed with rockets, you know, and rocket. He he just likes to go fast. And so he has this he has this house and he's got like a shed out back and he's making like his own propellants. He used to put garbage bags around his body to like protect himself from the propellants and he made his own rocket engines and he just got really far. Um I forget how long ago it was like maybe 2006 he made this rocket called the atia one and it was really just him and two part-time people and and it it got to uh to the edge of space um as like basically a hobbyist project and then turned that into a company and man new zealand has nothing i interviewed the prime minister who was who was running the country when peter was doing all this and he's like look well, first of all, it was hilarious because the prime minister showed up in like a T-shirt and shorts and like offered to pick me up in his car and take me to brunch. But um, he's like, look, we've got we've got like two tanks. We barely have like a ship, you know, and this guy's coming in telling me we're going to space. I was kind of like, do we want to, you know, get involved in that? That seems sort of big for us. And there's no talent to lean on. Nobody had ever done this before. And for people who don't know, Rocket Lab is like the second coming of SpaceX. I mean, SpaceX has launched hundreds of times. Rocket Lab's launched almost 40. And after that, you drop down to like one or two very quickly. And and so I don't know, man, I, you know, I do this for a living. I sort of chase weirdos around the world. And, and uh, I've never met anyone like like Peter. What do you think makes them so different? Is it just the upbringing? Is it like literally growing up in New Zealand, you know, literally uh, uh, kind of changes the way you think? Is it something about the family? Because I know that there was a lot of uh, mechanics and, and and things that they were doing on a day-to-day basis, tinkering and unpacking machines and things like that. Like what, what, what drove him to kind of end up in this very different place? Part of it has to be the genes because I, I sort of got super fascinated in his dad who was like this expert in everything. He was like a master sculptor. He was like the world's leading um, authority on jade and like worked at a museum. He built his own telescope for the museum um, that Peter used to sort of like help out with as a kid. And yeah, so they just had this garage. Peter had two brothers and they just sat there tinkering on cars nonstop. And it was just like a was like this brotherly competition to see who could who could do more but you know peter it's become clear to me over time peter is some kind of genius because you know he built after that first rocket they built this rocket called electron which is their workhorse today is it's and it's you can ask pretty much anyone as far as small rockets go it's like the perfectly engineered rocket and and yeah, Peter had a team of hundreds of people that helped him, but there were there were countless times where it just wasn't going to happen. They couldn't solve some problem. And and I asked Peter about this sometimes. He's like, yeah, I would just go take a shower, <laughs> you know, and then like this idea would come to me of how to fix this thing. He he seems to have some like intuitive knowledge of like he seems to be able to translate some intuitive knowledge of physics and the vision in his head, like very directly 
to his hands. If you ask anyone, Pete's down there with like a lathe and milling machine and making the stuff himself. So um, I don't know. Part of it's the culture, part of it's his genes, and then and then I think he's just like exceptional. He's also not um like he's possessed by having to make stuff, right? Like like he 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 made a rocket engine just because like he he had to. He's not like Elon. He's not trying to make some colony on Mars. It was more just like, I want to see if I can make a rocket engine, and then like, and then uh, I want to see if I can make a rocket, and then and then he just he just. I think that's his calling is the object itself. Yeah, what's fascinating is each person in the stories uh, that you tell in this book, uh, they seem to have different drivers, right? And it goes back to, um, you know, if you look at think of Elon, uh, actually, my wife has a, a theory, which I don't think we'll ever get kind of confirmation on. But um, when she read your book, she said, listen, you know, it seems like Elon was uh, kind of a great entrepreneur and he was going. But when his child passed away, he became possessed. He wanted to save humanity. He wanted to kind of go and, and and it became this thing of like, I'm going to level up my ambition. I'm going to level up, you know, the risk that I'm willing to take. And that was like a very pivotal moment. Did you find the same thing when, uh, when you were actually spending time with him and writing that book? Yeah, it's a hard thing to talk about, you know, because Elon's always, you know, his first child died of sudden infant death syndrome. And, um, Elon's always kind of downplayed it, you know, I mean, maybe for obvious reasons, he just doesn't want to talk about it. His ex-wife, though, used to sort of try to talk about it. And Elon would just say, look, what's the point of dwelling on this? I've just got to get to work. Um, So, you know, it's a hard thing. I did try a few times to kind of get into it, but it it was like one of those areas. He just, I don't know, Elon's in a bit more of like, I would call it like a expressive state than when I was doing a lot of interviews for the book. I think some of those things he wasn't used to talking about. Um, but, you know, I don't know. That, that's a good question. I never thought about it fully like that. He, he like SpaceX had already started then, but it was, you know, and he'd always had this Mars idea in the back of his head. But at that point, it was more like to be the Southwest of, of space to, to be really cheap and and um and more like the people in the book to like get stuff to space all the time really cheap um you have to imagine right that something like that has a huge impact on you and if there's like any defining quality of elon it's like this relentless sort of pursuit of making the most of your time that you have and so so you know if you're playing armchair psychologist you could definitely see how that kind of would would feed into something like that yeah it's fascinating to kind of think through you know you've got uh peter beck you've got elon and kind of what's driving those two guys but then you get to uh somebody like chris kemp and for those that don't know in in the uh book uh basically he has a, a very similar drive and determination and and it seems like kind of will his way into doing things. And there's this uh, now famous Alameda uh, kind of uh, campus or site and uh, it's abandoned and he basically goes and he's trying to get the Alameda city council and local leaders to like essentially give it to him, right? And be like, hey, like bring industry here from the Bay Area, right? Like come and, and build this out. And they're kind of like waffling it seems. And he basically just moves in and just like starts like fixing it up. And and on next thing you know, they're like, well, like, I guess we should just say yes, because he kind of is like doing what he said he was going to do. Is that what actually happened? 
Yeah, pretty much. I mean, so I was with Fast Dress is like the first day they started. And man, this place was like a real shithole. You know, it was it was uh, like there's kind of two parts to it. There's two buildings that they've taken over. And one was this. It used to be a naval air base. And so during World War II, this was like a place where they um, did a lot of repairs to, to jet fighters. And, and the first building Astra had was like this very weird. They used to test jet engines inside so that so that like our enemies couldn't see what was going on or whatever and um and so they have these huge like tunnels um with like these 12 foot thick walls and and these exhausts for all the fire and but you know like this place was full of uh like softball league paperwork typewriters that had been in city it was like a city dump you know it was like city, all the stuff the city had just been bearing there for years there was like a dead dude who got electrocuted trying to um grab the copper from, from some of the wirings there was like a dead body in there and uh you know the city didn't know what to do with it part of it is like a they thought it was like a hazardous and exactly like you said chris was Chris is like, well, I know what to do with this, you know? And so, so sometimes at night they would just, they would bash down like entire, they, they would have to get stuff like a electric, um, like a power subsystem into the building and the door wasn't big enough. So they would like bash down an entire like wall of the building, put the electric subsystem in, in the middle of the night when nobody could see them, repair the whole wall and, uh, and just keep moving forward. And, and over time, this was a long process. Like, like they always got kicked out a few times, you know, like the fire marshals would show up and, and things like that. But yeah, over time, then the city walked in one day and they have like this glorious rocket factory in the middle of Alameda, which is a very like um, suburban city near Oakland. So um, yeah, Chris, I think had, had some of that Elon spirit, similar things happened in the early SpaceX days as well. Now, the other character that I want to talk about is uh, Max, Max Polyavka. <laughs> How do you say his last name? All right. So he's fascinating, obviously. I think you call out in the book multiple times, like, I've never been around a person like this before. Uh, for those who are yeah. unfamiliar with him, he basically made a ton of money, unclear how much, uh, in uh, building internet companies in Europe. He's Ukrainian. Um, again, I say unclear because it's unclear how much money he made. It seems like it's unclear in terms of all of the different ways that he made the money. In some ways, people yes. are like, look, he's got dating websites and, and things that, you know, might not be for everyone, but it's understandable. And there's plenty of them here in the U.S. And then there's some people who accuse him of doing, you know, maybe illegal things or close to it, uh, potentially immoral things, whatever. But he ends up with a ton of money. He then uh, starts to invest heavily in the space business. And basically, it sounds like the U.S. kind of railroaded him. Right. They basically said, look, man. You've got this business, you've done all this work, you've invested all this capital, and right when the rocket's sitting on the launch pad and pretty much ready to go, they come to him and say, yeah, we ain't letting a Ukrainian uh, benefit uh, based on U.S. space technology. Is that kind of your take? Pretty much. One of the craziest stories I've ever seen, you know. Um, you got everything about Max right. He was even weirder. He used to be like a OBGYN before he was a software magnate, you know, his parents um work ukraine was like the backbone of the soviet space program his parents worked on the soviet rockets and software so it was kind of like in his blood he ends up buying this this bankrupt rocket maker in texas called firefly and and max had this crazy vision to try to unite like the old ukrainian soviet 
space with like new American space. And um, yeah, it was all going well for a while. He put $250 million into Firefly, which after that might actually be more than Elon personally has put into SpaceX and, and is a bit behind Jeff Bezos. But after that, you know, Max is kind of is right there and took years. The Firefly rocket is kind of one of those medium sized rockets. Like it's no, no joke. It, it took a lot of money and engineering and and they got it to the pad at, at Vandenberg um, in Southern California, where a lot of rockets launched from. And then things started to take a turn all of a sudden. I mean, Ukraine is is obviously meant to be like an ally of the U.S., but the U.S. government started to have questions about uh, a Ukrainian owning a rocket company that could fly from the United States. So they start like blocking him. They start messing with his other businesses, kind of like stopping the transfer of money um, from some things. And then, so I obtained all these secret documents. You know, CFIUS is the agency that like raises these foreign ownership concerns. And I, I actually got the CFIUS complaint against Max. Um, I found it pretty like hilarious and unsatisfying. <laughs> there's, 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 there's maybe like two sentences about his shady business stuff. And then there's like multiple paragraphs that, that they essentially say like, Ukraine is near Russia. Russia is a space superpower. Um, Max is Ukrainian. He may become a Russian asset at like some point in the future. So we do not want him to own this company. I was like, these things happen. I've covered like Huawei a lot, you know, getting messed with by the US government because of its Chinese ownership and stuff. I unless the government has some amazing confidential information, I've never seen anything like this to put like $250 million. They let him, it wasn't like, this went on for years. Nobody was questioning it while he was pouring money into it. It was only once the rocket was ready, they're like, oh, this was a bad idea, you know? And um, we could get into it a little more if you want, but but the timing on this was terrible because they sort of kick him out and then the Ukraine war kicks off like a year later when it would be pretty handy to have... Uh, someone like Max on, on your side. Well, what's fascinating to me is Elon obviously is South African, right? You've got Bezos, who's an American, but we just talked about, we've got people who are from New Zealand, we've got people from kind of all these different uh, countries. And not only are we talking about the individuals themselves and, and kind of their nationalities, but also we're talking about, well, family members or, you know, uh, grandparents. And, and you know, it's, it's the classic, like America is just the home of immigrants. And so, um, you know, it is uh, in one way uh, kind of a sad story, right, that somebody came to the United States, they poured all this money into it, they built out this amazing thing. On the other hand, I guess the question is, like, are there valid concerns about non-Americans owning technology that is being developed in the U.S. specifically around space? Like, what what is your you're, – you're the foremost expert that I would know uh, on space at this point in terms of all these different companies, all the nuances. Like, how do you balance it in your head in terms of, like, maybe where the line should be drawn uh, versus where it is today? So I've got complicated thoughts on that, you know, like in the, in the max situation in particular, um, I thought it was a little ridiculous because, because Ukraine is an ally of the United States. Like it would behoove us to have their engineers, um, to set up this linkage linkage between Ukraine and the U.S. You know, there's been rumors for like decades that that there's not much money anymore in the Ukrainian space program. They have very smart engineers that those guys sometimes are working for like North Korea or Iran on on their 
ICBMs and stuff like that. And I thought, here's this guy who actually has like a plan and he's like a man of action and means and he's making this happen. Um, like the bigger question. So over the last couple of years, we've seen the U.S. government throw out a couple of people like Max. There was also a Russian dude who, who had a space company and, and he got tossed as well. And there's always been these concerns, right? Because they are like the rockets are like ICBMs. Um, even Rocket Lab, Peter Beck in New Zealand, he basically had to beg the United States government to exist because uh, they did not want another country having like an ICBM. And even though New Zealand's part of the the Five Eyes, it's like our closest alliance. Um, he had to spend like a year going to see Obama to to allow Rocket Lab to happen. They had to set up a headquarters in Los Angeles. It was sort of like a fake headquarters for a while, and and it's real now. Um, but it's it's super complicated. I think to me. I understand the roots of all this. I think it's like a it's getting to be sort of an archaic proposition. Um, we used to not want our aerospace secrets to fall into other people's hands. Like Peter Beck went on the internet and read a few textbooks and made the second most successful rocket company in the world from New Zealand with like no U.S. help. So my general theory is that like if you know just about anyone can do this if they really put their mind to it and are smart enough at this point and then you know i make a television show called hello world where i go all around the world interview scientists i just went to like kyrgyzstan and they have a team of 10 women who are just college undergrads who are making the country's first satellite for like two hundred fifty thousand dollars. um i don't know i just think this is like a new era and like if we're trying to keep um if our goal really is to like try to keep ICBM type technology out of the hands of, of some nations, I just think it's sort of pointless, you know, at this juncture, it's, it's just, it's like not going to happen. And, and the U S doesn't, you know, anyway, yeah. And <laughs> China's doing just fine with their space program. I just, I, I think it's, uh, I think these are very like cold war, cold war kind of vibes that are still hanging around. Now, one of the parts of the book that um, I, don't, I think I knew this existed, but I didn't understand the extent to which it existed is uh, there's a difference, obviously, between the rocket company and the launch pads. And there's a payment that gets made to the launch pad when uh, it is used. But there's also a payment that gets made when it is supposed to be used. So it's kind of reserved, but not used. It's just a lower fee, yeah. right? Kind of like, hey, you wasted our time, so give us some money. Um, but in the book, you talk about pretty much people going around the world. They're going to Hawaii. They're going to various islands. They're going to Alaska. In, uh, I forget who it is, but somebody goes to India, right? And they're essentially looking for uh, these launch pads. And some of them, it seems like, have to do with geography and kind of, you know, a trajectory and things like that. Some have to do with cost. Some of them have to do with backlog of uh, actual schedule and things like uh, that. Is there an argument that the United States should just go like, create a bunch more launch pads around the coastlines of the US and like, let's just go all in on space and try to, you know, beat all these other countries? Or is there actual value either for the United States or for these companies in having launch pads literally be, you know, across geographies, across time zones, across uh, countries, and, and that's actually a better thing? Dude, I'm impressed. You're the first person who's like picked up on all this <laughs> and the like sort of sophistication and and intricacies of all these these pads and everything. Yeah, you know, um, I'd never thought about it fully like that before. The U.S. is in some ways launchpad rich. We've got stuff in California, Virginia, Florida, and Alaska. On the other hand, most of those are 
quite government or NASA controlled. So Rocket Lab has a private spaceport. Um, SpaceX has its one in Texas, you know, which is is pretty Starship focused. But other than that, you know, it's hard to find a private um, spaceport. I think the the U.S. is disadvantaged to build a ton more in that I think people are going to be super worried about having like a, you, you kind of need it as close to the equators you can get. So you want to be like Southern California, Southern Florida, Alaska is good. Just like you mentioned, there's specific orbits you can get to from up there. Um, but I think the trend on all this really just today, we saw this like old concept coming back today, which is is these barges out at sea. I, I think a lot of this moves to like offshore, just getting totally away from people. You pump out a rocket in a factory, you put it on a boat, you send it to this uh, this barge, and then launch it out in the ocean. And and obviously, the U.S. would be in great shape to do something like that. And that was. You know, we talked about Astra, um, this company, Alameda. I mean, this is something they've been pursuing for a long time because they're right by the water. It's just you literally pop the rocket out of the factory onto this boat and then like off it goes, maybe even the, the same day or the next day. Um, I think that's probably where we're heading is like less less infrastructure instead of more. When you think about those barges, are these like normal barges that can just be converted or do you think they have to be kind of custom built obviously i think a lot of people uh will think of a barge in space and they'll see you know the rocket boosters come and reland on these like drone ships in the ocean with spacex is that what we're talking about like spacex is the only one that can land this is more this is more on the disposable end and yeah they have to be like you have to have some infrastructure but this is also like we whatever picture most of us have this picture in our head of like 120 people in this like NASA mission control and everybody's got a job and they've all got the red phone and they're sweating, you know, like Astro launches their rockets with like two people in a modified, you know, trailer uh, shipping container that can go anywhere around the world. And this is really where we're heading. So the barges have to have like some infrastructure to fuel the rockets and stand it up and all that stuff. But otherwise, no, man, it's just a just like a flat, flat, all you need is a little flat surface and stand the thing up and, and shoot it. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible to kind of think about how quickly this is all uh, all playing out. Um, I want to talk about uh, companies like Varda as well. As you know, uh, I'm an investor in it. But what's interesting to me is in reading the book, uh, now I feel much more educated to talk to Delian and Will and those guys, right? And, and uh, be a little dangerous. I but, really feel, feel better about your investment, man. <laughs> yeah, you know, for sure. For sure. But if I had to segment out the industry, you know, kind of after reading the book, it's like, okay, you have the launch pads. You also have uh, a lot more of the kind of public stuff. Um, then you've got all these rocket companies, and that's really where the focus has been, right, is how do we get these rocket companies? I think SpaceX with Starlink, they're the first ones or, or one of the first ones. Back, okay, like now that we can get to space, what do we do when we're there, right? We've got yeah. obviously a couple of other companies that are trying to do things around satellites and, and stuff like that. Varda is trying to do manufacturing or these like space factory type things. Um, talk about maybe not just Varda, but like what is the cohort of companies that are going to say, all right, I don't want to worry about the rocket thing. Like I'll just hitch a ride with these folks who already figured out the rocket thing, but I want to focus on what we actually do once we get to space. I've seen, I think uh, Bezos and Blue Origin talk some of this as well. Like what are you seeing there that's interesting to you or or what are some of the companies or people that I think people should pay attention to? Yeah, I mean, 
honestly, the Rockets are sexy and fun to watch, but this is like where most of the action is. And I think the money and, and there's just tons more companies than rocket companies. Um, just super quick, you know, this, like we would not be having this conversation five years ago. I mean, this stuff is like flipped so quick and, and, part of it is like the industry has matured so you used to be a rocket maker and now and that was all you did and now companies like rocket lab so they make the rocket and then they make 90 percent of what goes into a satellite the electronics the solar panels if you're a another startup you just take your fancy camera or your scientific experiment and you just plop that into rocket labs little sort of bus i mean this is what varda is is doing in fact and um, you know, this just saves a ton of cost. You, it used to be like every startup used to have to do all this work, basically building the innards of a satellite for just trying to do their mission in space. Um, like in the book, I argue we communications and imaging have been these first two major businesses, and we do have thousands upon thousands of satellites doing that, and we're going to add more. I think Varda represents like the so I think they're going up, what, next month, I think? In June, yep. I think it's June, yeah. So, and on that rocket, I mean, I think that rocket is like a symbol of a moment in time because it is our first one where we're really getting to new new businesses. Like everyone's always said, oh, there's imaging and communications and a little sort of fringe science for laboratories, but like what is the next business so Varda's going to go up they're going to make pharmaceuticals you know um there's astroforge i used to think asteroid mining was insane until i actually went to astroforge's office um for my show and and it looks it's a very talented team it looks very real to me they're setting up their first they're not like mining an asteroid right away but they're setting up their first you know like prototype to see if they can um burn through a sample up there and, and get some data off of it and so pretty quickly we, like we are now I, I would broadly call it manufacturing um, mm -hmm. of, of different stripes you know and i think i think we're going to move industry um into low earth orbit there's a lot of sense of putting things like data centers that can be solar powered up there um all kinds of interesting things you can do with molecules um, in without gravity pressing on you. So I think I think we're like right at this very moment, this whole thing is kicking off in in a new way. It reminds me like I'm old enough to sort of live through like the 1996 consumer internet where we we laid all this fiber and we're building these data centers and everyone's like talking about killer apps all the time is annoying. But you know, everyone's searching for like what are we know there's something here, like what are people gonna do? Some of the business models were maybe obvious, but nobody would have guessed like sort of what 2023 fully looks like. And and we're running this huge experiment in lower earth orbit is like it are we having that same moment right now? And do these things check out or or do they not? I gotta ask a couple of questions that I've always been obsessed with. One okay. <laughs> Are we going to colonize Mars in our lifetime? You know, people, I am, I could, I could not be more convinced that SpaceX is going to send rockets to Mars. It's going to send tons of stuff to Mars. When you get to like an actual human, I get, uh, it is awful, right? It's like a six month ride. You really want to believe that you get a ride 
back. <laughs> you got to put up. We got to put up some sort of infrastructure um, to to um, some sort of infrastructure to like let a human inhabit that. I would say when I finished the book on Elon in like 2015, I was pretty convinced that of sort of what SpaceX would do there. I'm more convinced than ever that that company is like the most capable. Um, company the most capable like arrangements of thousands of people maybe that's like ever been assembled so um i don't know if i'm ready to commit to full colonization i am super confident we're going to send stuff to mars and and i think probably like have some people try it out you know i i i'm less optimistic than elon about like how hospitable it ends up being up there do you think elon dies on earth or on mars it's always said he wants to die on Mars, man. Um, I think if you asked him these days, he'd probably tell you like an AI was going to assassinate him you know, before he gets up there. I'm kind of surprised he hasn't been on one of these SpaceX missions now. You know, we just set up another batch of uh, of like private astronauts. No, come on. Keep ago. that man on Earth. Protect him at all costs. Do not let him get on any rockets. Yeah, those SpaceX... They're pretty safe, man. It's probably safer than being in a car. Um, I understand, but still, in the one-off chance, can you imagine the damage that would be done to the space industry <laughs> if Elon Musk, something happened to him on a rocket? You know, it's, and again, I'm sorry. I, I'm This is really not meant to, like, be a fanboy sort of thing. SpaceX is just very cool. I did not think people realize how fucked the United States would be if SpaceX did not exist. Like, we just killed the space shuttle. It's like Lockheed and Boeing were doing nothing new at all. Um, China has been pumping just billions of dollars. People would be freaking out. I, I laugh sometimes. Um, I mean, look, Elon brings a lot of a lot of grief upon himself and says some crazy things. I I always I laugh that uh, it's so black and white and like I, I find the whole conversation sort of stupid. Sometimes it's like it's like okay, who? Like on some level, why do you care what anybody says? Just look at the last 20 years of what this person actually did. I mean, it sort of speaks for itself. It's also crazy to to do it in 20 years. Is uh, Like, look at uh, Blue Origin, you know? Yeah. Um, they've done okay. I mean, they have, like, these tourist lights. They've existed for just as long as SpaceX. Um, nowhere in the same ballpark. You think, like, the billionaires got, like, a group chat, and they're just like, yo, I'm starting a space company, the next one's like, me too? Dude, if they do, Elon's crapping all over him because, like, Bezos and Branson have had a tough time of it. Or Paul Allen passed away. It really hasn't gone that well for them. I, when does this podcast go up? As, uh, this week. This week. I mean, later this week, I got a story running on uh, an exclusive story on Sergey Brin, who is, is not doing rockets, but you will see he's also getting in the aerospace game. Um, there does see, there seems to be a thing, right? It's like, I guess after you've bought a, a mega yacht, you have to like <laughs> of course. move up. But, he, but Elon's the only one who's turned it into a real business, you know? Um, I think I used to not be a moon person i was sort of like eh, let's just do the mars thing the moon is is actually getting interesting now we got like a couple you know private companies working with nasa to send humans back but then there's companies now that are like starting to think about private colonies on the moon which is actually affordable now they're putting 
private satellites around the moon. I actually, I think the moon gets pretty interesting in the next 10 years. Couple more questions for you. Uh, we now are getting to a point where we've got like air traffic control of all these satellites and how do we actually keep them from colliding with each other? We then get into like the whole like military industrial complex and like, you know, can I shoot down your satellite? Can you shoot down mine? You mentioned in the book that Russia basically took out one of their own satellites as kind of a reminder, like, yo, we have missiles that can, that can hit these things. Um, is there legitimacy and like uh, offensive or just defensive capabilities when it comes to this space force thing? Is there going to be like a Blackwater kind of, you know, private, uh, you know, a defense force that you can hire to protect your satellites? Like what's going on in, in kind of the military components of this, both with the, uh, the military space force, but also uh, with maybe private companies trying to get into that game? I will, man, that is a cool, I'm going to write a short story on that idea after this. I mean, I don't think people realize how weird shit is about to get. Uh, like Andrew like, absolutely needs space defense service. That that would be cool. I could see this. I could see this. I, you know, it's like on, on the big level, right? Everybody should be incented to not screw this up because the second you blow somebody else's satellite up, you kind of just risk taking out your own service so you like on one level people should be rational actors i think russia has already you know russia is the great wild card in all this giant space superpower with space program collapsing um no commercial space startups at all to speak of like how do they sort of handle this new world china's like this mix of government like trying to sort of become private and then the u.s is just like roaring commercial space the like government guys are kind of laggards um i don't know how things are going to go there's other stories in the book too like people should know you know i think it's china put up a satellite that then popped out a baby satellite that would like just hang out by american satellites and and it didn't seem to be doing anything but it was sort of like uh if we wanted to shove you out of orbit, we probably could, or maybe we could hack you. So it's it's really strange. In the Defense Department, my God, yes, they desire the ability to like fly a rocket tomorrow to put a satellite right over whatever they want, and and they're getting like close to that. So we did it I don't to know. An, we did it to an asteroid, right? Didn't we? Didn't we send a rocket and like hit an asteroid and try to uh, redirect the asteroid? Yeah, we've done stuff like that, but in this is this is like you talk. They call it responsive space. I mean, the DoD has been fantasizing. This is like Space Force all comes from this. And Pete Warden, who we talked about, is like kind of the progenitor of a lot of this. It's it's just treating space like another arm of the military, where like something breaks out, you mobilize your air your aircraft carriers, your your jets, your troops, and then you start sending rockets up to do stuff, you know? Um <laughs> the problem is like there's things we really depend on, like GPS today, which is you sort of take it for granted, but it's like this glue that makes your cell phone work and and all kinds of transportation work. I mean the second we screw something up in space that you know, like we can, yeah. we can back in time quite quickly. <laughs> All right. Last question for you. Are aliens real? <laughs> this is funny, man. Okay. So Pete Warden, you know, astrophysicist, black ops. If somebody should know about aliens, it's him. I've spent a lot of time with Pete. I've asked him this several times. I mean, he's actually like, Look for, for aliens. He assures me they're not. Maybe maybe he knows and he's not telling me. If anyone 
was going to know. I've asked Elon too. I'm like, look, man, you're going up there more than anybody else. If aliens were going to contact someone, it's probably you. <laughs> you know? Elon says he's got nothing either. So I don't know. Do, I they, wanna, I, do they believe that they exist or do they just believe, hey, we haven't come in contact with them yet? Like, I think I, Elon, I, I sort of get the feeling he just doesn't even think about this much. Pete, um, you know, he wants to explore the outer reaches of the solar system, and he's he's being funded by Yuri Milner right now to make like a a probe that would go out of our solar. Like Pete wants to find, I think Pete believes, and he wants to find find stuff. Um, so, you know, if it's you one of the, the greatest. Math, it's it's one of the greatest conquests that a human could do right now. Like the person, yeah. the person who contacts aliens. You know, Thomas Edison. Uh, you know, Nikola Tesla, you go through all these things, all these inventions, all these things, like there's certain people in history, I think Elon for uh, SpaceX and, and kind of reasonable uh, rockets, all that stuff, like he'll be remembered for literally centuries. The person who yeah, contacts yeah. aliens first, they're on the map. I saw, I saw Andy Weir who wrote The Martian, he tweeted yesterday, he's like, you realize there's a non-zero chance that our first contact with aliens will be a dick pic that's been like, you know, forwarded out from something. Um, but, you know, I don't know, man. If um, I wish I knew. This is, I, Elon will pay that. the aliens off in Dogecoin just for the laughs. <laughs> Can you imagine if, uh, Elon, if Elon was our first contact? I don't know. Oh my God. I don't know if that would vote well for us or he, not. He would be attacked. <laughs> no one would believe him. He'd be just attacked. They'd be like, shut up. You don't know anything. You're stupid. <laughs> you, I think you're probably right. <laughs> All right. Ashley, this book was fantastic. When the heavens went on sale, the misfits and geniuses racing to put space within reach. Uh, what I love about it is you kind of build off of the work that you did in uh, the book on Elon, but also you cover uh, what now have become some of the most important companies in space. You've got a bunch of people in here, uh, people who worked at NASA, people who are building these companies, uh, but also you you help explain, I think, some of the difficulties and complexities in doing this stuff, right? It's not just like, hey, raise some money from venture capitalists, go out onto this launch pad, launch the thing into space, and we all get rich. There is a ton of complexity. Uh, and one of the things that you know I think people probably don't understand is uh, when you build the first rocket, it's not supposed to actually make it to space. Right. Like if you if you right. launch a rocket and it goes to space the first time, like you are the one in a billion. Right. It's actually no, we're just launching it. Yeah, to the get, only one. yeah. Yeah. You may be the only one. And so I, I think the book is just uh, does a great job. One, explaining uh, kind of the frontiers of space and why people are doing this, but also the progress we've made to date so far. So I highly suggest people go get it uh, again when the heavens. Uh, went on sale, the Misfits and Geniuses Racing to Put Space Within Reach. It's even got the really great photo on the front. So if you're watching this, uh, it's worth it, I promise. Um, any last words from you, Ashley? Where can we send people to find you uh, online? Yeah, man. The uh, We're going to make a HBO documentary about that here. We're in the process. Um, I spell my name a little weird with two E's, just ashleyvance.com or at Twitter, same thing. Um, and I... Uh, it's just great being on with you, Pop. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate you taking the time uh, a couple of years out of your life to write the book and, and then letting me read it in a few hours. Uh, but we will, <laughs> we, we will definitely do this again in the future, and I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, man.